You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 9. All right, we had wrapped up with Revelation chapter 9 last week. We've been talking about the trumpet judgments. We've gotten through six of them. We talked specifically with the first four uh, that as Christians, we can be encouraged by the current and future destruction of the earth. So as we see that cosmic upheaval, as we see God's judgment coming, we can be encouraged because we can see it as a sign of the outworking of God's sovereign purposes to defend his people and to warn his enemies. Think about that for a second. When we're talking about the things that have been going on just recently in our world with hurricanes and earthquakes, and you know we've talked about the, uh, the, the, uh, the death of, of uh, mankind resulting from those events that it pales in comparison to the amount of people that would be killed in some of these things that are to come in the future, right? So as, as, um, as sad and sorrowful and as we pray for those that are in the, the path of some of these things right now, um, the, the people that will die in, in this storm will, will pale in comparison to those that will die in the future in some of God's judgments. And on top of that, God's judgments will come in response to Christian prayers, as Christians pray for God's vindication, as Christians pray for God's kingdom to come, it will come in the form of judgment and God will respond to those prayers. We've seen those prayers being offered on this altar in heaven and the the smoke and the aroma coming before God and God responding with these judgments. And so we can be encouraged knowing that God's sovereign purposes are being worked out to defend his people and to warn his enemies. Again, people will die in the storms that come. People will die in the judgments that come, but not everyone, right? There are people that are left that have the opportunity to repent. And so we can, we can know that God is working things out for the purpose to defend his people, but also to warn his enemies. As evil forces rise in advance, we saw these uh, horrific armies that potentially come upon the earth in these various forms that we can take comfort in knowing that God controls Satan's realm and will use their presence for our good and his glory, that God controls these evil forces for his purposes. And then ultimately, last week we saw, when judgment comes upon this earth, God will do so sovereignly by directing the events, and he will do so justly by, by, by providing sufficient opportunity for repentance. And so we closed last week looking at Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And so we saw last week that God has given opportunity to repent and that there will be a uh, refusal to do so. And so application last week, we talked about trusting God who, who controls evil for his purposes and repenting before a God uh, that we may have set up idols uh, over. And so we talked last week about examining our lives. Are we guilty of elevating any area of creation to a sinful status in our life? And so I want to continue that discussion before we move into Revelation chapter 10 today. And so our summary sentence for today, because the Bible treats idolatry with such seriousness, it is imperative that we identify the threat of idolatry in our own lives and take steps to ensure that we continue to give glory to the creator rather than to creation. It's imperative because the Bible treats this with such seriousness. It's imperative that we as Christians identify the threat of idolatry in our own lives, and we take steps to ensure that we continue to give glory to the creator rather than to the creation. All right? I forgot to put the kids' note uh, answer on there. Can I see you have the kids' notes? So the kid note answer is, um, because the Bible takes idolatry seriously, we need to as well. Because the Bible takes idolatry seriously, we need to as well. All right, so that should lead us into some discussion about uh, what is an idol? Why does, why does Scripture talk about it in such a dangerous form? Um, and I also want us to talk a little bit about why idolatry was so appealing to Israel before we actually get into our notes this morning. So what is an idol? Um, and I do have these in your notes so if you want to jot some of these things down. First of all, it's turning a gift into a God. It's turning good things into ultimate things. It's worshiping the gift over the giver. 
It's turning a gift into a God. It's good things into ultimate things. It's worshiping the gift over the giver. It's, it's enjoying the things that are given to us more than the one who's giving those things. We see this a lot of times in, in kids, right? Kids growing up early, uh, parents and grandparents who want to give and want to show love to the child. Oftentimes it creates a, a confusion in the child's mind. Do I love the person giving me the gifts or do I treasure the things that are being given to me more, right? And so oftentimes kids begin to, begin to expect and to demand things from the people that love them most because they get used to being given things. And it's, it's, a, it's a working out in their own mind. Uh, who do I love more? What do I love more? The gift or the giver of these great things. And, and that continues on into adulthood. Do we love the things that God has given us more than the God who gave them to us? It's something that we love too much. It's loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God. It's the craving, the wanting, the enjoying, the being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. The last thing I would say about that, it's an aspect of creation that we begin to orient our life around. Let me say that again. It's an aspect of creation that we begin to orient our life around. We're going to come back to that point later on, but it's an aspect of creation that we begin to build our life, our schedule, our budget around. We begin to invest into something other than God and his kingdom. We find our significance and our safety in it. Our money and our time start to be given to it. And as I was thinking through this in my own mind and in trying to evaluate potential idols in my own life, I think it's worth mentioning that if we step back and we identify the things that get the bulk of our money, that get the bulk of our time and attention, that the burden of proof then falls upon us to show why that is not an idol, right? So if there's something in your life that has begun to, to uh, take a lot of your money, take a lot of your time and your attention to, the burden of proof falls upon you to show why that's not an idol. It doesn't fall upon your accountability group to try to convince you that, hey, this may become an idol in your life. Like you're giving a lot of money to this. You're giving a lot of time to this, a lot of attention to this. Uh, it's really beginning to, to become a focal point in your schedule. Like you're orienting your life around this. Burden of proof falls on you to show why that's not an idol. Because in understanding idols and, 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 what the, and what place they can hold in our life, I mean, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna demand time and attention and money and affection. And if we're giving those things to something, doesn't mean that everything that we give our time and money and attention to is an idol. It just means that the burden of proof falls on us to show how are we using this for God's glory and not using it for our own personal satisfaction only. All right? So in thinking, and again, this is, this is going to be heavy application-based for you to think through what is it about you? What is it about your life? What things exist that potentially could become idols or are idols already in your life? Why are idols dangerous? Why are idols dangerous? First of all, because the wrath of God is coming upon them. Those that worship idols, those that serve idols, the wrath of God is coming upon that type of mentality. In Colossians chapter 3, a passage that we'll reference a couple of times today, Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It should be clear to us that idols are dangerous because God's wrath is coming upon them. God's wrath is coming upon them, which is why it's so important. Like I said, the Bible takes uh, idolatry serious. It's imperative that we make sure that we're not setting up idols in our own life because God's wrath is coming upon idolatry. Secondly, idols separate eternally from God. Idols separate us eternally from God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Someone who could be characterized as someone who is covetous, who, who is an idolater, they don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We see that really play itself out at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Revelation chapter 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, 
the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's eternal separation from God, those that give themselves to idols. We see it in the next chapter, the final chapter of God's word, Revelation chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those essentially who repent of their sins, who experience that cleansing, who turn from idols so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The Bible takes idolatry seriously, so we should take idolatry seriously because God's wrath is coming upon it. It separates us eternally from God. Let's talk for a minute why idolatry is so appealing to Israel, especially in the Old Testament, because when we think of Old Testament, we think of Israel's history, we think of idolatry a lot of times. We see idolatry in their early existence, uh, even before they're actually a nation. You'll remember uh, when we talked about Jacob and his family fleeing Laban, we talked about Rachel taking the family gods, the family idols with her. Idols would continue to take root in Israel's hearts throughout the rest of their history in the Old Testament. We see them coming out of Egypt, and we see them before Mount Sinai, and they panic because up to that point, Moses had been the voice of God to them. Moses had been the visual representation of God to them. They probably elevated Moses to uh, too high or too lofty of a status because Moses disappears on the mountain, and they're not sure he's coming back, and so they need to replace Moses in their minds. And so they cry out to Aaron, hey, we're going to give you gold and everything that we have. Make us, make us a god. Make us a God that we can see. Make us a God that we can worship. And then they continue to have idolatry spring up in their life throughout the Old Testament. They're setting up high places. Uh, When they go into Canaan to the promised land, they don't get rid of idolatry like they're, they're supposed to. They do in some aspects, but not to the full extent that God intended. And so people who worship idols are allowed to linger and they begin to influence Israel. And so they begin to adopt their worship practices. It leads them into idolatry. God has to banish them and put them into captivity. It's not until we get into the New Testament that really idolatry has been weeded out in the form of the Old Testament that we think of idolatry, right? The, the Pharisees are, are, are certainly not free of idolatry as they've elevated the law almost to an idol status in their life. It just starts to take on a more spiritualized form for them in the New Testament. They've kind of gotten over the false gods, the foreign gods, by the time the New Testament hits. And now they're worshiping the one true God, but just setting up other things in in lieu of new idols, basically. Why was it so appealing to them, though? Why Why did they crave and desire and continue to fall back into this sin? I don't know how much you know about um, idolatry in the Old Testament and the type of worship and the, the style of worship that existed for those people, but essentially it was a guaranteed type religion for them. It promised you certain things if you did things the right way. Basically, uh, the, these foreign gods they would worship, and they were all a little bit different, and they all looked a little bit different, but essentially the idea was if you come to the worship service and you, you provide the right incantations, you say the right things, you bring the right things, you do the right things, then the gods were then obligated to respond to your actions and do things for you. Okay, so a lot of it was tied to the fertility of the land, the rain seasons, and the growth of the crops. And so they would do things in order to garner a response from their gods. It's why when uh, Elijah is battling the, the Baal prophets on Mount Carmel, he's talking to them about the things that they're saying and the things that they're doing, that maybe they're not doing it right. Okay, so it was, it was meant to be kind of a guaranteed religion. Do it right, and the gods will do what you want to do. It was a selfish type religion, which certainly uh, would be appealing to those of us that are born into sin, which was all of us, right? So we're born selfish. It's rooted in the gods needing man, which meant they were obligated to give things, right? The gods of the Old Testament that Israel started to worship were needy gods, They needed to eat. And so part of the sacrifice system for them was feed the gods. They need man to do things for them. That's completely contrary to the God that we worship, right? God doesn't need us. God doesn't demand anything from us that that he can't supply himself, right? God creates us to experience the great joy of who he is. Not true in these foreign situations where the gods were, were, were needy of mankind. And so again, 
It inspires you to do these things because you know, hey, if they need me, they're going to pay me for doing these things. It was a selfish type of a setup. It was an easy setup. It was an easy religion in that it involved ceremonies that did not impose upon personal lifestyle choices. It involved ceremonies that did not impose upon personal lifestyle choices. You showed up and you left, and you didn't have to do a whole lot in between the ceremonies. It didn't, it didn't give uh, restrictions to your lifestyle typically, certainly not the restrictions that we see God handing out at Mount Sinai for how his people would live and act. And this certainly translated itself into the actual ceremonies, which is the last thing. It was a pleasing religion. Not only was it a guaranteed religion, a selfish religion, an easy religion, it was pleasing to the Israelites because it appealed to the flesh. The type of worship service that they experienced was a fleshly type of worship service, right? There was sex and there was, there was alcohol and, and drugs probably, all kinds of things that were incorporated into a worship ceremony that certainly made it not boring, right? It wasn't something that people dreaded going to. This was something that appealed to the flesh. So Israel's over here worshiping a holy God and they begin to look and see their friends and how their friends worship and this appeals to the flesh. This appeals to what the things that I want to do. Less restrictions. God has to do things because he needs us. It became a very appealing thing for them to chase after. And God has to work through their hearts and has to discipline them, has to help them see, man, the things that were important in these foreign religions, these idols were gifts that were being abused, gifts from the creator, the good creator. So it was an appealing thing to Israel for, for many different reasons. But I was, I was writing some of these things down and thinking through some of these things. We think in terms of, well, that's, that's so different than from today, but it's really not. Like If you think about how a lot of people in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, approach our God, I mean, it's not a whole lot different, right? People come to worship services and simply believe that by coming, that God's obligated to do something in some form or fashion in their life because, hey, I made the effort to come, right? Um, it's not all that different in the sense that a lot, of, a lot of churches have now allowed people to come and place no real demands upon their ethical choices with their lifestyle. People can come and live in sin and sit in worship services and not, not have their sin addressed. It's tolerated. And, and people leave believing, this is okay. This is okay. I can come when I need to come. I can come when I need something, and then I can leave and be done with it and, and separated. So it looks a little bit different in that we're not worshiping, we're not worshiping statues and we're not carrying on maybe in the same way. But there's some similarities to what we see in the Old Testament worship style, the, the idols that were set up and, and why it was appealing to, to approach religion in that way. What do idols look like today? What do idols look like today? And, and the difficulty with identifying idolatry in our life is that it can take just about any form. Anything in our life can be abused and set up to be an idol in our life, which is why it's so hard to identify. And it's why I think it's so important and so necessary for us to pause and really step back and reflect to figure out where is the potential threat in my life for something to become an idol. And I mentioned to you earlier, I don't think we're ready to move forward in Revelation until we, we do this, until we really pause and step back and identify what are, what are the things that could be idols in my life? And what am I doing to make sure that they're not? I mean, this, this needs to be some point of discussion in our accountability groups over the next month. For guys, in our, for guys and girls in our groups to know, hey, this is, where, this is where my accountability group could potentially struggle. This is something that could become an idol in this person's life. And this is how we're going to help make sure that it doesn't. Scripture takes it seriously. God takes it seriously. We need to take it seriously as well. All right, let's jump into our notes here. Number one, idolatry separates us from God. Idolatry separates us from God. For our kids, we should never love God's gifts more than we love God. Idolatry separates us from God. In Revelation, or uh, Romans chapter one, sorry. Romans chapter one. We'll start reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry separates us from God. This starts with what Adam chose in, in the garden. He chose creation over the creator, right? In, in our studies in Genesis, we talked about how Adam essentially had been given, he had been given significance and he had been given safety by God, right? We, we talked extensively in, in our studies in Genesis how, how God had basically, I mean, just set Adam up in the best situation possible. The things that we crave in life today, things that we desire. As we get older and move into adulthood, we start thinking about what's my job going to be? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to marry? Right, those are the, the key questions that we're trying to answer as we move from high school to college and then into adulthood. How do these, these questions get answered? And, and for some of us, they continue to not be answered. And so it really begins to test our faith and our trust in God and his provision. I mean, Adam had all this set up for him when he's created, right? He's placed in a garden. He's told where he's going to live. He's told exactly what his job is to take care of it, to fulfill his responsibilities in that garden. He's given a woman who's unlike any other aspect of creation at that time, right? So he knows exactly who he's supposed to take care of. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do on a daily basis. He's been given every tree possible to eat from that's, that's good to the eye, that's, that's good to the taste. And the one tree that he's not allowed to eat of is the one that he begins to harp on and really begins to focus his attention upon. And it becomes an idol in his life. It becomes, it becomes the point of attention for him and Eve, and, and they're susceptible to the temptation. Satan comes in and really begins to have them question God's goodness in their life, and he chooses something that's created versus the one who freely gave so much to him. And that sets off a chain reaction where we're all born into this situation that Romans 1 describes, where God's glory is clearly perceived to us in creation, and yet in trying to, in trying to see his glory in creation, we end up glorying in the creation. We end up worshiping the creation. We end up giving our attention and our love and our affection to the creation. So not only did Adam choose creation over the creator, man continues to make gifts into God's. We fail to glory in God through his gifts. We fail to glory in God through his gifts is exactly what, what's being described here by Paul in Romans chapter 1. What's clear in creation is not seen by the wise, and they become fools in their reasoning. It says they worshiped the, and served the creature rather than the creator. I put in my notes a question for, for me to answer. Are we prone to make much of God or much of the gift? Are we prone to make much of God or much of the gift, which usually results in making much of ourselves? Right? When, when we begin to glory in something about creation, something that God has given to us, whether that's uh, um, uh, something personally about us, whether that's a hobby that we enjoy, whether that's uh, a relationship that God has blessed us with, do we begin to glory in the gift more than the one who gave the gift to us? Going back to what we talked about with our, with our kids, do our kids enjoy the person giving the gifts or do they enjoy the gifts more? Are we still trying to learn that lesson as an adult? I think oftentimes we are. Are we prone to make much of God or much of the gift? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. Let me read this to us real quick. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God is extremely interested in his glory and his creation, giving him the glory he deserves and nothing else getting that same glory. God desires for us to give him the glory that he deserves. 
Um, here in this passage in Romans, we see that we fail to, get, to give God the glory in his gifts. We fail to express gratitude for his gifts as well. And some of the readings that I've been doing, just trying to work through this in my own life and thinking through my own um, idolatrous tendencies, one of, the, one of the points that was made is that gratitude is a great weapon against idolatry remembering the source of the things that we get to enjoy in life. But going back to Romans chapter 1, they did not honor him as God. They did not give thanks to him. The two failures of of sinful man, we don't honor God like we should, and we don't give thanks to him like we should. We enjoy the gifts, but we fail to give due credit to the one who has given those gifts to us. The Bible tells us that God's wrath is coming upon this type of activity. It's coming whether God gives the warnings that he gives in Revelation or not, right? Man has has deserved and has earned God's wrath. And that just continues to to grow as we see in Revelation, God gives warnings. He brings uh, early judgments to warn and mankind continues to not repent of his idolatry. So he's storing up more and more wrath Wrath that was already deserved because at our core base, we fail to give glory to God. We fail to give thanksgiving and gratitude to him for the things that he has blessed us with. Idolatry separates us from God, according to Romans chapter 1. But the good news, the gospel news, is that idolatry is defeated by the gospel. Idolatry is defeated by the gospel. For our kids, the gospel helps us see that Jesus is better than this world. In 1 Thessalonians, Chapter 1, the, the first chapter that we went through as a church back in, I guess, 2011 now. First um, Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul is talking to this church that he has helped plant, and he's bragging on them a little bit about the response that they've had to the gospel. And in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And Paul's just blown away by the growth of this church. I mean, he just, he's talking about the fact that, man, we showed up, we preached the gospel to you. It didn't fall on deaf ears. It came through supernatural power. The Holy Spirit convicted you and you responded to it. And we know you responded to it because you began to follow us. You began to do the things that we were asking you to do in our discipleship relationships. And we were, we were leading you to Christ and you were coming to Christ. You were following us. And then when persecution set in, when affliction set in, you received the word even more and you kept pressing on with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And you've grown up to the point now where you're an example to other people. And then in verse nine, he comes back to the, the highlight of the report. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, (coughs) who delivers us from the wrath to come. Idolatry is defeated by the gospel. And we see this here in this early church planted in Thessalonica. The gospel causes us to turn from the secondary. It causes us to turn from the secondary. There's a conscious awareness that the gospel gives to us of the glory of God that draws the sinner to the Savior. Here's a group of people who had grown up worshiping idols, had been worshiping the things of creation, had been glorying in the gifts of God, had been abusing those gifts, seeking satisfaction and security through those gifts. And Paul shows up and begins to share the gospel with them, begins to preach the good news that the creator has come to save them from that futility has come to offer the significance and the safety <coughs> that they desired. And they, and they responded to it. They, they're convicted by it, and they turn from these secondary things. This conscious awareness of the glory of God draws them 
to their Savior. But not only does the gospel cause us to turn from the secondary, I thought I changed it. Um, Number two, the gospel incites us to serve the ultimate. The gospel causes us to turn from the secondary, but the gospel also incites us to serve the ultimate. So we turn from secondary things, we turn our attention to the ultimate thing, our creator, and these people begin to serve him. (coughs) They begin to serve him. They turn from the idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's a newfound purpose in their life of using creation rather than worshiping creation. They're now using creation to serve God versus glorying in creation and worshiping the things that God has given to them. And this is to me where where we have to connect what is an idol and what is a tool for worshiping God. Because we're talking about the same things. We're talking about the same things. We're not talking about evil things being set up as idols. We're talking about good things, gifted things that can be used for good purposes or can become the only purpose in our life. We can use them for good purposes or they can become our purpose. I was talking with our middle school students this week during our spiritual emphasis week. We were talking about how, um, especially in middle school, their life can become wrapped up in sports or academics. That we have kind of both in our middle school. We've got kids who are passionate and competitive and want nothing more than to beat every one of their classmates in, in academics. I mean, they want the 100, and if they find out somebody has 101, they want 105. I mean, I mean, they just want to be better than everybody else academically. We've got other kids that, that could care less about the academics, are just thankful that, that, that um, sports is attached to school, or otherwise they would have no desire to be there. And they want to be the best they can possibly be at sports. And we were talking about the personal glory that comes from that. We've got a kid that, that just continues to, to reap personal glory from his hard work. Um, the kid's been on Sports Center recently for our middle school. This past week, Ron Gant, who used to play for the Atlanta Braves, came to our school and interviewed him and spent an hour and a half on our campus. I mean, they're just talking about where do you get your, where do you get your abilities? How can you be so good at baseball already? And it was cool to hear him say, I don't, I don't know fully where he's at from a faith standpoint. He's at least heard the right answers because as he's being asked these questions, he talks about it being a God-given ability, that, that he can't explain it, that it's something that God's given to him. And so I was talking with our middle school students that, that both of those things that they're kind of wrapped up in right now, academics, sports, both of those things can be used for God's glory and they can compete to be the best possible athletes or students and God receive the glory for it. Because I told them, I said, I sit down with parents all the time that want to know how good's our sports program and what colleges are our kids going to before I'm going to decide if I want to send my kid here. And so I was talking to, especially to our academic students, I said, be the best academic kid you can be, get as many scholarships as you can, and go to the best schools possible so that I can tell future parents, we've got kids going to Georgia Tech, we've got kids going to Harvard, because it's going to make them put their kid in our school and sit in our Bible classes and sit in our chapel services and hear about Jesus where they would not have heard about him otherwise. I said, you can use your desire to be great at some of these things and it not be about you and about your glory, but you see a bigger picture that man, I can use the things that God's given me, whether it's my athletic ability or my brain, and give him glory for it and draw people to the kingdom through being the best, best possible uh, kid that I can be in these areas. And that's the same that's true for us. We can use the gifts that God has given us, the loves, the hobbies, the the things that that we enjoy. We can use them either for our own glory, for our own satisfaction, for our own desires, or we can use them for good purposes. We can use them for God's glory. Idolatry is, is defeated by the gospel. The gospel incites us to serve God using creation. Rather than worshiping creation, we shift our attention now to using creation to worship him. Number three, idolatry remains an ongoing threat for us. So even though it's defeated by the gospel, there's a, there's a heart change that should occur if we've truly become a, a follower of Christ, it remains an ongoing threat. We won't see it finally defeated until God's wrath comes upon idolatry and sin and, and, and death are defeated ultimately at his return. 
there's a there's an interesting ending to one of John's letters, First John chapter five. He spends a ton of time in First John talking about um, really how to know if you're a believer or not. Do you do you love Jesus? Do you have good theology about Jesus? Do you do you know right things about Jesus? Have you put your faith and trust in the one true Jesus? Do you love other people? Do you hate sin? Like these are things that are, that are earmarks of what a Christian is. And so he's talking about all the importance of, of seeing those three things, seeing Jesus for who he is, loving other people because, because God is love, uh, staying away from sin. He says all these things, and then he just closes out chapter five, the last thing that he writes here. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. If you back up even a little bit further in verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. So there's all this encouragement. If you're truly a Christian, you're going to stay saved. You're going to keep having faith. You're going to keep pressing on. You're going to make it to the end that the evil one can't touch you. Verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. It's the last verse. It's the last verse. It's his last little nugget of wisdom, his last little reminder. All these things are true. If you're truly a Christian, you get it, you know Jesus, you love other people because the Holy Spirit's indwelling you and giving you the the power and the capacity to do so. You hate sin, you're turning from sin. You're gonna make it to the end. The evil one can't touch you. Keep yourself from idols though. I mean, it's that warning that we've talked about before. Scripture uses warning to keep true Christians on the right path. And it's the last thing he says, keep yourself from idols. Even even a Christian who has been saved uh, by the gospel and idolatry has been defeated in his heart still has to work to keep himself free from idolatry. Two aspects that I want to draw our attention to in that. As we get ready to close, first of all, we must be careful not to avoid not to avoid enjoyment out of fear. The wrong response to, okay, idolatry means abusing creation. It means enjoying things too much. It means worshiping things and loving things and not loving the one who gives me those things. The wrong response would be then, well, I'm just not going to enjoy anything. Like if, if there's a possibility of abusing it, if there's a possibility of finding too much enjoyment in it, I'm going to go to the opposite extreme, and I'm just not going to enjoy anything. I'm not going to have any hobbies. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to do spiritual things only, as if we can really compartmentalize that as, as, to, as to them only being spiritual things. But, but basically having this super spiritual mindset of, man, if there's enjoyment in it, it's not for me. I think Scripture warns against that approach because if you're not careful, that actually becomes your idol. My idolatry is that I don't have idols in my life, and I'm that person. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, we dishonor our creator by treating his gifts as though they are evil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul gives warning. He says, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's basically saying, you can think that you're cutting out your idols by simply getting rid of enjoyment, but but you haven't really killed it in the flesh yet. Your, Your flesh will find other idols. He says it's wrong to think that just withholding yourself and abstaining from certain things is the way to get rid of idolatry in your life. He goes on to say in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, <clears throat> and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> 
We dishonor our creator by treating his gifts as evil. We have to be really careful to, to, to not avoid enjoyment out of fear of it becoming idle in our life. Now, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We won't take time to read both those chapters, but I would encourage you to do so. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10. We may have to refrain from some gifts because we're irresponsible with them. Okay, so we are not called to cut out all enjoyment in our life. But Paul does warn and say there may be some things, especially tied to your previous life before you became a Christian, things that that took an unhealthy uh, role in your life, became an addiction in your life, rooted itself into your life in such a way where it is abused and you're not mature enough to handle it in a God-honoring way. You may just have to say no to it completely. He goes on to say you may have to say no to things based on who you're around, because it may be true of that person, that this thing is, is constantly a stumbling block for this person, and you have to be willing to give it up. I mean, that certainly shows someone who's not making something an idol when they can say, you know what, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm what's wrong, right? The, the one thing says, man, creation's evil, not me. Creation's evil, so I have to stay away from created things or I'll abuse them because they're bad things, God says, don't, don't view my creation that way. My creation's good. You're, you're the thing that's evil. You're the thing that's abusive to it. And so the, the, the right attitude is to say, I mean, there's certain things, I'm just too evil to enjoy it. It's not evil. God created it good. It also protects me from being judgmental from others who enjoy that same thing, right? It's not evil. I just can't participate in it. I can't enjoy it because I am evil and I abuse it. You may be able to enjoy it. You may be able to find enjoyment in it and and worship God through it and it not be a stumbling block for you. So we have to be on guard. We have to be careful that we don't avoid enjoyment out of fear. But number two, we also have to always remember that we are in danger of turning enjoyment into rivalry. We take God's gifts to us and we make them his rival because we're now giving our affection to the things that he's given to us. We must remain on guard to avoid living for the wrong things. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. I think that's the wrong verse. Um, it's a good verse, but it's not the one that I intended to read there. Um, let me go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We must remain on guard to avoid living for the wrong things. John reminds us these things are passing away. These things, these things don't last. We have a responsibility to set our mind on things that do set our mind on heavenly things. Colossians chapter 3 reminds us of that. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 4. So we, were, we started reading 5 about uh, covetousness being idolatry, but in verse 1 it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Same idea being talked about in Philippians 3, that we set our minds on heavenly things. But we can also do that. We can set our minds on heavenly things while enjoying the good things of the earth. First Timothy chapter 4 already mentioned that, that God's creation is good and that it can be enjoyed. But he also tells us this in First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We enjoy things. We don't set our hope in those things, right? There's, there's the, the balance there that Paul talks about. He says, man, charge those people who are doing this in an unhealthy way that have made riches their hope, man, charge them not to do that. Charge them not to do that, but to set their hope in God who richly gives us these things to enjoy. Not for us to hope in them, but to enjoy them. 
So we set our minds on heavenly things while enjoying the good things of the earth. Do the gifts that we enjoy increase our love for the Creator? In Colossians, where it talks about setting your mind on things, the word means to orient your life around. So going back to the beginning, we talked about uh, idols being things that we orient our life around. The, word, uh, the Greek word is phroneo. It means to direct our ultimate attention and affection to something. So if I set my mind on heavenly things, if I set my mind on my creator and his kingdom, if my mind is oriented around that, all my enjoyment of his gifts fall under those purposes to make much of him, right? To make much of his kingdom and to use those things for worshipful type purposes. From an application standpoint, and again, this is where it falls completely on you to set aside some time to think and to meditate, to prayerfully consider what this looks like for you. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Man, the odds of this room being filled with people who don't have an idol in their life right now are slim to none. Are there some people that maybe all aspects of their life are are being used for God's glory and and his purposes and and nothing has gained an unhealthy uh, place in their life? Possibly. But you still need to step back and see if that's you (laughs) or if you fall into the other category of, of us that have probably set some things up to an unhealthy position. At worst, at worst, we need to spend time identifying the things that are a threat to become an idol. You, you may not have anything that, that, that demands some intense repentance about right now. You may, you may not have that. You may, but you may not. But man, we should all be able to recognize, we all need to take this serious enough to step back and say, okay, what are the potential idols in my life? I may not have any right now, but what are the things that could potentially become idols if I lose my resolve to worship my creator over them? The, 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 the questions that we went over today or the, the statements that we went over today in John Piper's article, I've posted them on the city. 12 of them, ways to determine if your enjoyment has become unhealthy, has it become an idol in your life? Um, there was a couple of them I wanted to highlight that, that kind of stood out to me. Um, number five, enjoying is, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it's starting to feel like a right and our delight is becoming a demand. No longer are we enjoying it as a gift, but it's almost like we deserve it. We have the right to have it. Um, another one that stood out to me, especially uh, um, just, just in light of thinking through hobbies, enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it draws us away from our duties. When we find ourselves spending time pursuing an enjoyment, knowing that other things or people should be getting our attention we are moving into idolatry. There's a lot of great things to consider, and so I've posted that article for you. I encourage you to read through it as you prayerfully consider ways and areas that could become idolatrous in your own life. A couple of books that I wanted to mention um, as well. Um, we've given these out at our Christmas party, so I don't know who has them. Um, if you have them and you've already read them, then feel free to pass them around. Um, the first one is called The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. Um, it's got some really helpful information there about um, how to enjoy the things of God. Um, next one is called Redemption. It's by Mike Wilkerson. It's, uh, the subtitle is Freed by Jesus from the Idols We Worship and the Wounds We Carry. It's, it's basically a study of Israel leaving Egypt and going through the, the temptation with the golden calf and, and how that looks in our own life and, and identifying idols. And then the last one is called Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols, um, which is a great resource, too. I was looking at this some even again this morning. A um, lot of helpful information here. Um, so I would encourage you, for those that have some time to read right now, I encourage you to potentially pick up one of these books um, and spend some time reading through it um, as you consider um, things that may be becoming idols in your own life right now. From a family worship question standpoint, I want us to read through the story of the golden calf in the Exodus 32 passage and then uh, discuss as a family, why do you think Israel was tempted to build this idol? Why do you think it made God so angry? 
and what happened to the people as a result. Exodus chapter 32. Let's pray together, and then Tyson's going to come and lead us in one final song. Lord, we thank you for our studies in Revelation. We thank you that you have chosen to include us uh, into having insight into your final plans and purposes. God, I'm thankful that you cause us to pause here in Revelation 9, talking about people who are unwilling to repent of their idols. And God, we're reminded from the Thessalonians that a sign of the gospel really being true in our life and something that we're really clinging to and putting our hope and trust in, that gospel that Jesus is our everything, is that we turn from idols and we serve you with the things of creation rather than worshiping the things of creation. God, I'm thankful that you've created us differently and and we all have different interests and, and things that we enjoy. We can make a long list from just the people in this room, God, of things that you have given to us on this earth that bring us enjoyment. God, help us to step back and to realize that every one of these good gifts that we have, these hobbies that we enjoy, these relationships that you've blessed us with, they can all be used for good purposes. They can all be used to bring you glory and honor and to draw attention to your kingdom. But help us to realize they can all be used for evil purposes as well. They can all be used for self-glorification. They can all be used to an unhealthy degree. God, give us the the desire to step back and to ensure that we are worshiping you properly, that we're orienting our lives around you and not something that you've given to us. Maybe as we leave today, we would take the time necessary to identify possible idols in our life, to make plans to communicate to our accountability groups how we're taking steps to make sure that they don't become idols, and that we would also be willing to confess areas that maybe have become idols we have the, the, the willingness to step away and to, to even maybe give up things that we're abusing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.